Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. This episode of the Paracast is brought to you by Audible.com. Download a free audiobook of your choice today at audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. Now... On with the show. David, you know, most of our shows, as listeners know, have been devoted to the UFO mystery. We've had other excursions down different paths. We've covered mm-hmm. cryptozoology, which some people feel might be somehow UFO related. We've had right. ghosts, hunters, and people like that. We haven't really explored mediumship too much until, of course, we got Dr. Vander Sandy with us last week. He was really a nice man. I don't know that I'm convinced totally about the mediums and stuff. But well, uh, yeah, I'm not sure about the photographic evidence in his book. I still have serious problems with it. Yes, I agree with you. Even not being a photo image editing master of the universe as you are, I looked at it and said, okay, fine. I don't think that's evidence. And I think the problem I always have with any of these claims is, number one, we don't doubt Mr. Vander Sandy's sincerity. Remember, this book is something he paid for publishing himself. He's Mm -hmm. not making a lot of money out of this. He's a man who has basically done his career. He's working part-time. This is his hobby. And he's written a book about his hobby, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, decently written and everything. He is obviously sincere. He clearly believes that this life after death phenomenon is genuine, that the experiences he had with these trans mediums are also real. I tend to think there could be a certain degree of self-deception involved. And also, when I raise the specter of the fact of deception, that the force behind this is feeding on the consciousness of the witnesses and generating experiences they expect. That's something he really didn't go into, but it's something that's part and parcel of the UFO field, which is that the mystery depends on the percipient. Well, all experience depends on the person experiencing the experience. This is the problem we run into in this discussion, Gene, in that obviously it's so easy to second-guess oneself until basically you're chasing after your own tail. I, I completely relate to what Jan was saying in terms of being in front of the experience as it's unfolding and at that point believing it's legitimate. I, how many times have I gone through exactly that myself where something's happening, I know it's completely out of the norm, I know it's probably in the realm of the paranormal, and I also know that I, you know, I don't have a camera with me, I can't grab photographic evidence, and I know that in the end it's all going to come down to my word. And that's a very slippery slope because... Like with so many things regarding this field, ultimately these end up being, in many cases, very personal occurrences, very personal in in every way. And when you try to convey this to someone else, if the other person you're trying to convey these experiences to is being reasonable, then they will view what you're saying through, hopefully, some sort of filter of skeptical thought and rational and reasoning logic And uh, at that point, if you don't have evidence, it's really tough. And and I'll give you a perfect example of this, Gene. I think there are a lot of lessons, of course, to be learned in movies. And I think in the last week or two, I told you about a movie I watched on the Netflix on-demand system. They had this film that I'd never heard of. It came out in 2007, and it's called The Man from Earth. I just want to say I did rent that through Netflix 
and I should have had my copy. And just for our listeners' benefit, right now the on-demand feature online only works on Windows PCs. That might change in the future. Of course, this other company, Roku, has this device, a third-party device like an Apple TV, that you can oh, buy. poor people with technical stuff. This is not, it's not a technical show, but it's a device that people could buy for a hundred bucks, and basically means you could watch a certain percentage of Netflix content on your TV without waiting for the DVD. End of story. End of story. So. At the moment, you can buy this DVD, you can rent it via Netflix, you can watch it on their on-demand service. But the point of this is really interesting, Gene, because it it's a very well-written movie. It's very well acted. It all takes place in essentially one room. So the strength of the movie really really relies on the storytelling. And the premise is, is fascinating, where you've got this history professor who's at some college, and he apparently has decided to leave the school and move on. He's in, announced this apparently in a rather sort of haphazard fashion to his uh, his associates, and he invites them all over to his home for this one evening to hang out. And he's like leaving the next morning. He's gone. And he hasn't told them where he's going. He hasn't given any explanation for his leaving. And his colleagues are, you know, he's got an anthropologist, professor, there's a, there's a biologist, there's a, a woman who apparently is deeply immersed in Catholicism and teaching a structured religion. And so he invites them all over, and he starts talking to them. And what ends up happening, you can tell he's holding something back, this guy. And what ends up happening, he essentially tells them he has decided to reveal, because he, he can't live with this anymore. He's going to try an experiment, something he claims he's never done. He claims to be a man who has been alive for 14,000 years. And what he will now do is explain to them what he has seen, the experiences he's had. He wants them essentially to ask him questions because of all their different areas of expertise. And that's the, that's the setup. So you've got a guy, and he's got no proof of this except for stories and recollections. And so as the evening progresses, you see them going deeper and deeper into the analysis of his claims, you see them gradually really starting to, well, I guess you could say, believe him. At least some of them do. And the whole movie is based around this premise. I'm not going to give anything else about the movie away. I think everybody should rent it or buy it and see it. It's a fantastic story, Gene, but what, what I realized watching this is that it really does tell us something about what it's like to live through the paranormal, to be immersed in the situation where you're having these experiences, and then being faced with this dilemma, this, this terrible problem of, well, you want to reveal to people, especially people you're close to what's going on, but you realize that you, you don't have tangible evidence because that's the nature of this beast. It just is. So now you have to try to convey a reality that you lived through. And people will, of course, if they're reasonable, if they're rational, they'll try to take apart, disassemble, analyze what you're saying so that they can come to some decision about whether or not they believe in the claims. And ultimately, it comes right down to integrity. It comes down to a combination, a balance of logic and intuition. And if there's one thing, Gene, I've learned over the past two and a half years 
of doing the Paracast with you, it seems that like so many other things in our reality, certainly in our society, there is this tremendous sense of unbalance, just this, this situation where, for example, trying to look at reality through equal helpings of intuition and logic, what I'm seeing is that people get extremely polar and go either to the point of complete intuition without logic getting in the way, or conversely, nothing but logic discrediting any hard value of intuition. I think we've forgotten the gray and area. I, there is no gray area, but that's true yeah. with a lot of parts of our society. But as you were talking, something occurred to me here. You know, if I say, yeah. hey, I saw this horrible auto accident outside, and the car was smashed to smithereens. There were four police cars around there with fire trucks to clean up the spilling gasoline. People would believe me, all right? You know, right. we accept it sure. as something that happens. It's not. It's a possibility, it's a possibility. right? Hey, I just mm -hmm. saw a UFO land in my backyard. Hey, my grandmother is appearing before my bed every evening. Now, to me. If I'm immersed in this stuff, that might be part of my reality. But you see, sure. unless you're involved in the same reality and have shared experiences with me or you've had your own, you look at me and say, Gene, you saw a UFO? What were you drinking? Or maybe you had a nightmare. Or maybe you're sleepwalking. Whatever. We'd never think that is anything other than a fantasy. Whereas this rather horrible situation, which is also maybe not a common occurrence, this accident, we take it face value. We never question it. And this well, is, of course, the dichotomy we have in yeah. proving these things to people. Well, we basically parse reality through the filter of our own experiences. And if we have been part of a reality where there are a wide range of experiences, if that's part and parcel of our reality, then it's easier for us to visualize and imagine and therefore accept. Right. For example, I haven't had versus, an experience with life after death, ghosts, or anything else. You have had experiences of this nature, so I think you felt more empathy for what Jan Vander Sandy mm -hmm. said. Now, he and his wife have been doing this for years. This is their hobby. Clearly, over the years, he has spent an awful lot of time <clears throat> engaged in this particular practice, hobby, pursuit, whatever. And this is a natural part of his reality. You can tell that by listening to what he's saying, that he's no longer using the disconnect or the overview of the scientist. This is just a natural part of his existence. And therein lies the rub. And, and there it is. So the thing about this, Gene, it was, I think, uh, three or four months ago, there was an article in the New York Times. And it, uh, <laughs> it's really kind of fascinating. And what the article dealt with is, how would you prove you're Jewish? So there was this case, I forget the exact uh, specifics, the details of the article, but it boiled down to someone having to prove to the authorities that they were Jewish. Now, this is kind of an interesting conundrum. Let's say you're a person, and uh, here's a great example. You want to move to Israel. In fact, I think this is what the article was about. Someone who wanted to reestablish re themselves and start over again by, by moving to Israel. Now, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but the state of Israel has a policy by where if you are Jewish, 
then you automatically qualify for Israeli citizenship. It's sort of the whole reason the state of Israel was founded as a permanent home for the Jewish people of the world. And we won't get into all the politics of that because that's a, that's another show, certainly not this one. But the bottom line is that let's say you're a Jew living anywhere in the world and you decide that for any number of reasons you want to resettle in Israel. So now what you have to do is you have to prove that you're Jewish. And the article focused on the problems this person was having, this American, was having in trying to establish some sense of verifiable proof that they're Jewish. And it's not as easy as it looks. A lot of the things that you would think would be a slam dunk, well, gee, uh, uh, I'm a guy, I'm circumcised, I'm Jewish. Beep, not, it's not only Jews are circumcised. What do you got next? Okay, well, uh, let's see. I'm a Jewish male, I have a talus. A talus is the prayer shawl that one gets when they're bar mitzvahed. And that's a shawl you're supposed to keep the rest of your life. But what's interesting about this, Gene, is that in my own case, I'm a Jew who did not have a bar mitzvah, but I have a talus. It's kind of strange. My ex-father-in-law, who I adore, adopted me as his son he never had. When I got married to his daughter, one of the gifts he gave me was this beautiful talus and this lovely velvet bag. Now, theoretically, I didn't have a bar mitzvah, so I really sort of shouldn't have a talus. But my father-in-law gave me one that I treasure, and it's my talus. So, <laughs> I, I, I mean, in my case also, I've got a Star of David tattooed on my that arm. That proves it. You know, just Still, stop right there. That proves it. The <laughs> tattoo, yeah. we should all have, to, I have to get a tattoo. Ladies and gentlemen, I have to get a tattoo. Hey, neighbors, as we said, this episode of the PowerCast is being brought to you by Audible.com, and you can download a free audiobook of your choice. And you can select from over 40,000 audiobooks and lots, lots more featuring bestsellers about the paranormal, about UFOs, novels. You pick it, and when you get the book that you want, just download to your Apple iPod or over 400 other devices. All right. You can download your free audiobook today, today at audiblepodcast.com slash powercast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash powercast. Hi, this is Timothy Green Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO, reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer for the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publications for free? Conspiracy Journal and Bizarre Bizarre sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MRUFO at WebTV.net. And we'll send you two of the most exciting publications. But we do need your actual address because these are physical publications. And you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field, as well as up-to-date information on the latest book and videos and it's all for free or drop us a line mr ufo at webtv.net we want to hear from you if you have a comment or question about the paracast send it to news at theparacast.com that's news at theparacast.com and don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com.
I'm the Paracast. David and I are talking shop, but also talking about belief systems and how do you prove something. And I look at a more immediate situation. Now, a lot of my early possessions are probably lost in a lot of moves I've made around the country. My parents are gone. My brother, one and only brother, is gone. And I have no access to information about our early history. I really don't. So I sympathize with this. How do I prove this? How does my son prove he's a Jew? Well... He was born to Jewish parents, but then what evidence is there that his parents are Jewish other than names that would lead one to believe that he is Jewish? Now, Steinberg is not necessarily a Jewish name. There are people named Steinberg who are not Jewish. It's actually a German name. It stands for Stone Mountain, I believe, because I don't want to get into Mm -hmm. it. But you see the point here. The point is that you think there are things that would be mundane and easy to prove, which you find out as you get down to the to the specifics are not easy to prove and it's just at that point so obvious that if we look at the world of paranormal research and events now you've got a situation where it's even more difficult to prove anything and that's the nature of this beast so what do we rely on at that point gene well we we look at the person telling the story and we try to gauge their level of believability we try to get a handle on what their sense of integrity is. And we look at motivation. I mean, I think that's really important. And I think that the times on the show that I've said, well, okay, here's someone telling a story. They're not making any money with it. I'm going to maybe potentially think that they're more credible than someone who's got a story, who stands to earn a buck story and propagating that story. And and I've caught a little bit of flack for that. People say, well, you know, that, that is that your main criteria? It's like, no. It's not the main one, but it's certainly important. Again, you try to look at the entire context from which someone is speaking. And really, that was what led me to become such close friends with Jeff Ritzman. When I first started talking to Jeff on the phone, I didn't know whether to believe this guy or not. I, I, I had doubts, I mean, which I think are reasonable. Some of his stories are pretty extreme. It wasn't until I went and spent a few days with him and his family and got to be around them, and got to talk to them, got to read their body language, and see what was going on in their faces and their eyes when they were talking and relaying some of these stories. That's when I realized that certainly the stuff that Jeff says he believes happened to him, he definitely believes it happened to him, and his family definitely feels that they underwent a certain variety of experiences that their sincerity to me was extreme and what really hit me at the time was my god this guy's got everything to lose and so precious little to gain by telling these stories Uh, that has to count for something And, and i think that when we talk about the different personalities and the different claims in this realm we have to really look at the whole situation and This is something that there have been a few places on the web, for example, that have uh, taken us to task for things that we've done, for attitudes we've had, and uh, specifically with regards to the recent Greer interview, there are some people on Above Top Secret who were absolutely disparaging us for what we said and for the last 15 minutes of the interview. I don't follow Above Top Secret as much as I used to. I kind of see what we've had in terms of a handful of emails, a couple of whom came from Greer's own supporters. I think most of the people in our message board, though, basically support our approach, and so they were basically sympathetic. But what happened at ATS? 
Well, one would argue, of course, that people who are involved in participating on our forums are automatically, I wouldn't say automatically, but they tend to reflect in many cases our values and our opinions. That's why they hang out. Of course, there are other people who who don't feel that way. I I have to say this, and I'll, I'll make this call out to our forum members. I think, generally speaking, the level of discourse that occurs on the Paracast forums is much higher than what goes on in places like Above Top Secret. We don't have anywhere near the membership they do. We don't have anywhere near the amount of traffic. They're a well-funded organization. To make it really short and sweet, there are a number of people in Above Top Secret that attacked our show and essentially said that we were not worth listening to because we had serious doubts about Greer's claims and we were uh, not uh, bashful in expressing those claims. It's, it's real simple, folks. For example, what uh, claims? Well, he, uh, and that, by the way, is our guest, Klaus Dona, who so many of our listeners will be happy to know we have back on the show this week. But Klaus, I'll tell you what claims, uh, among others, claims that basically this is, well, a situation where Stephen Greer has made claims that he knows that we have free energy technology salvaged from spaceships, that we understand how they work, but the evil forces in the government are holding them back in order to allow the oil companies to continue in their quest to hold dominion over the entire planet. These are wonderful paranoid claims. They make for great espionage novels. But the bottom line, well, this and also uh, Dr. Greer claims to be in telepathic communication with a number of interstellar species who have done things like spontaneously heal him, that have done things like allow him to convene with them in some subconscious space, and uh, that he can, for $900, take people out into a field, wave a flashlight in the sky, and bring alien ships right overhead and have them imbue the observers with love, understanding, and peace. Now, this is all a very... Fantastic. Yeah, this is a great fantasy, but it has precious little to do with reality, and the claims of having extensive photographic and video evidence of these supposed vectored-in craft experiences have never been backed up with a single revelation of a single photograph or a single piece of video. Nothing. It's basically this person making wild claims, saying that he has seen these things, that he has all of this proof, and then never coming forward with with a single thing. And this, by the way, Klaus, is in sheer contrast to, for example, what you do, where what you have are ideas you get from actually having verifiable physical objects, things that you can touch. Yes. Yes. But the problem is that it is also very hard to prove because how, how can you do a dating on a stone? It's impossible. Right. So, so how can you prove how old is the stone or some of the crystal skies or whatever? You, it's very hard to prove it still. There's step by step we are coming closer to some uh, answers, to some solutions, and that means finally maybe we get out of that big puzzle a real picture. Or maybe we'll get little pieces of the big picture. Because one of the things, you see what I'm saying? One of the things that I'm always very cautious of, and and just to wrap up the thought about Stephen Greer, 
I have no problem when people say, I have these experiences, I have seen these things, I'm conveying what I saw, but I do not understand what they mean, or I do not have the complete picture of the reality behind the experience. I am very skeptical, on the other hand, when people like Greer and other people uh, who are associates of, of his say, we have these fragments, and from this we will give you not only the big picture, but the big picture of how different things in different fields are all interconnected. Oh, well, uh, let's see. I have received telecommunications, uh, telepathic communications from extraterrestrial beings, so I will now show you that Nikola Tesla had devices that make free energy and bagels. Now, the bagels, and I believe, by the way. This is know, just nonsense. Forget the free energy. I'll go for the bagels. Yeah, we I need mean, good bagels, always. Oil and bagels. Yeah, that's right. But, but the bottom line is when anybody says they have absolute answers to anything, I am always very cautious. And it's very simple. My brain, to some extent, still works. My reasoning, my logic is still intact. And what you missed before we connected with you, Klaus, on this show, on this episode, was that we were talking about how difficult it is to prove certain things, how difficult it is to prove many things, and how ultimately when you evaluate someone's claims, you try to look at the person making the claims, you try to look at, at the wholeness of that person, what motivates them, what are they saying, are they making money from this? Are they trying to part you from your money and telling you things that they think you want to hear in order for you to give them control? They're the basic things in any human interaction that assist us in trying to know real essential issues of how to survive in a world on a planet where everybody is engaged in the process of survival and people will lie people will cheat they will deceive in order to make themselves more comfortable more wealthy or to give themselves more power and to understand that this is the nature of human existence and it is very nice to be positive it's very useful to be optimistic but one has to be cautious and one has to have a good level of integrity and understand that we are all primarily in, interested in surviving and hopefully evolving. Though I think, one, survival, we are definitely all interested in evolving ourselves. That is maybe more questionable. Yeah, you're right. Hopefully I'm partially right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think the best is, a reality is you have to be positive. There are so many things going on and people are talking about 2012 and everything. Okay, but uh, who knows what comes. So until that, we have to be positive and then we see what happens. Sure. Now, at the same time, people talk about 2012 as if everything will change in 2012. As long as we can make it to 2012, then we'll come out of December 2012 and we'll be in an enlightened world with evolved people. And I think to myself, gentlemen, that this sounds, the emphasis on 2012 in many ways sounds to me like the build-up to the year 2000, Y2K, when people are saying all of the computers are going to fail and all of the electrical grid system of the world will go down overnight. Hey, neighbors, the easiest online meeting service, go-to meeting, just got easier. 
If you haven't tried GoToMeeting, now's the time. Because the new version of GoToMeeting has fully integrated voice over IP. With this new total audio feature, you have more audio options by being able to conference through a phone or the web, save time, save money, and be more efficient. Hold an online meeting with GoToMeeting. Try GoToMeeting free for 30 days. Visit GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts. That's GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. You're in the Paracast with James Steinberg and David Piedi. You never know what's going to happen next. Klaus Doner joining us this week, returning. He's a world traveler who has uncovered a lot of interesting ancient artifacts. Do they indicate the presence of ancient astronauts? A lot of fascinating mysteries, and that's what we're covering. But back to 2000, I know they sold lots of personal computers. I know there were lots of stories about what might happen at the turn of the century. Of course, none of it did. So what makes anyone feel that 2012 is going to be any different? I don't know. Hype, hype, hype. Everything is hype, hype, hype. And some of us are tired of hype, hype, hype. We are more interested in trying to find a centrist position, in trying to be rational and reasonable at a time when emotions dominate so much of who we are and emotional reactions to things. I mean, anybody looking at the history of the United States in the last eight years sees the the incredibly problematic situation derived from emotional reactions, in many ways irrational reactions, to a very terrible thing that happened in this country, but one that one could argue was almost overdue based on our actions around the world. And, and the thing that, and this is not just politics, this is in every aspect of human endeavors, people are so hesitant to take responsibility for their actions. And, and, and realize that there are repercussions to all of our actions. This is the nature of the physical world, that when you, you have a, an action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. Looking at the things that certainly politically our country has done in the last 30, 40 years, to think that there was never going to be any repercussions for the really awful things the United States was involved in. And I don't want to take this into a political direction, but certainly in, in the realm of the paranormal studies, what we find is some of the same kinds of things. You find people making outrageous claims and then expecting everybody to take this field seriously. I mean, Klaus, I, I want to ask you something, and I'm looking for it online. I had seen a news item in the last 48 hours that some of the museums that have crystal skulls are discovering that their crystal skulls they thought were ancient, are not. Do you have any insight into this? I researched a lot, and especially I talked with uh, a man in Vienna who is really worldwide, I think, the number one in uh, checking ancient crystals or precious stoneworks. And he checked already in 1984 the famous, most famous Mitchell Hedges skull, and his thinking is he found some wheels work with the microscope on 
the crystal skull on the Mitchell Hedges skull, and the way it is work, it uh, they worked uh, on this skull or who did this skull is very precise, and his thinking is that this skull was done in Germany in Ida Oberstein at the end of the second part of the 19th century. Okay. So that's so. one thing. But this Mitchell Hedges skull is in the crystal world the most famous, the most ancient. And when the Hewlett Packard Institute in London did the research uh, on the Mitchell Hedges skull, uh, they announced that it's a sensational that whoever did this skull, they worked against the structure of the crystal, which they said is impossible. And when I told this to my friend, he was loud laughing and he said, this is completely nonsense because in the 16th century and 17th century, the Miseroni brothers from Italy did fantastic vases and big cups out of crystal skulls, uh, of crystals, uh, mountain crystal. And he said, how would they have done it if they could not work against the structure of the crystal? And he said, just an announcement is nonsense. So that means whoever is checking the crystal skulls, it's very hard to say if it's original, old or not. He did also a check on one sky from uh, a Dutch lady, Mrs. Van Dieten, and uh, she calls this sky ET, and he researched several hours, he checked the sky, and then he said that this sky was done by hand, and that must have taken a long, long time. But also he said it, you cannot talk about the age of such sky, but he said that uh, there is some corrosion on, uh, I hope I spell it the right way in English, in German we say corrosion, corrosion. This happens on crystal, it takes at least over 500 years, and that means what he could say is that this sky is over 500 years and handmade, mm. so that means that sky is an original so-called Mayan skull, and they found this skull in Guatemala. Other skulls, I have no experience personally, but it would be great if this man could check all those skulls and he would be able to say which one is really old, handmade, and which one is a modern one. Let me ask you a question about this, class, Yes. Because I know that with certain materials, as they're exposed to the elements or even to air over time, the surface of these materials changes. And I'll give you an example of this. My father, may he rest in peace, made sculptures, carvings into blocks of lucite, plexiglass. Mm. And I still have a number of these sculptures. And what has happened over time, over 30, 35 years, is that the sur these were cut blocks of lucite that were delivered to him cut and polished. But what I've noticed happen is that with many of these blocks of lucite, as they are exposed to sunlight and air over time, what ends up happening is that the surface of the block of lucite basically starts to get these micro-fractures. It's almost as if it's cracking, but at an almost microscopic level. And the way it ends up looking is that the surface of the block of lucite becomes a little cloudy. It's almost as if it's no longer sharp. It, it becomes a little, a slightly opaque, cloudy. 
And this is fairly consistent over the surface of the block of lucite. Some blocks of lucite this happens to, others don't. And it appears to be in some ways related to the amount of direct sunlight that these blocks have received. Do similar things happen with other uh, materials like crystal? No, crystal doesn't change the structure and doesn't change. No, no. Okay. So you never can say, just looking at uh, the, this guy, for example, is it an old one or a new one? It's definitely impossible. I see. And when you, you talk have to about check it, you, che- you have to check it with a microscope and very carefully to find some some working. When my friend checked, sorry, today uh, I had a very hard day because we are just preparing the new exhibition for Korea, which starts on 1st of August. So it was a little hard day, but uh, I tried to concentrate on my English, sorry. When he checked the, the ET sky from uh, Mrs. Van Dieten, he told me that uh, he found some little, little things on it, which means that they cut the foam, the raw foam from the skull out of a block of crystal mm-hmm. uh, with with some uh, very pike, I think you call it pike, they picked it out in the raw form. And then they worked with, uh, he suppose, or he thinks with quartz sand to make mm-hmm. the form, the really form. And that, mm-hmm. he said, must have taken long, long time because he found also some scratches, some very fine scratches, which gives him the the idea that that must have been through quartz sand. And then finally he thinks that at the end they polished the skull with leather. Of course, part of Uh the mysticism involved here is that these skulls are ancient skulls or based on ancient skulls that impart certain levels of mystical qualities. What is this all about? Where did this stuff start? Have you researched that? Uh, I had an experience in Switzerland when we had the exhibition. It was the 11th November 2004 and we had the visit of a Russian lady shaman and she asked me to go with me through the exhibition after closing at 9 p.m. and then she will tell me several things for several pieces. I was always skeptic and uh, I still always I'm very skeptical with new things or checking old pieces and I invited her and she brought an interpreter and we went through the exhibition and you can imagine that we cannot write all the explanation what we know for each piece because that that would mean that nobody of the visitors would have the time to read all that and she told me really for example the bones of the 7.6 meter giant of Ecuador where many people say this is impossible and this is stupid so she did not know anything about that she did not read about it she cannot uh, read German and she was standing in front of the bones and she got in a kind of uh, trance she spoke in a very strange language which I never ever heard before then she opened the eyes and she spoke in Russian with the interpreter and the interpreter told me she she was really shocked her name is uh, Nina Nina was very shocked because these bones are of a s- over 7.5 meter human so that was one and others she told me some 
she gave me some informations about pieces which we did not announce and not write on the explanations. So that gave me the, the approval that she can do something which I cannot explain. So finally, she was standing in front of uh, the skulls. We had seven skulls presented in the exhibition, not only mountain crystal, but also other material, precious stone skulls. And there was one from Mongolia. And she again got in trance. And then she translated, she spoke to the interpreter, and the interpreter said the information of this skull is that in a few days a big wave will kill hundreds of thousands of people. So at that moment I got this information and I didn't think a lot about it. I mean, a big wave, what does she mean? And on 26th of December when I uh, switched on the radio, the information came that the tsunami in Southeast Asia killed 20,000 people, 50,000, and day by day the volume was uh, increasing and finally this tsunami killed really hundreds of thousands of people. So, hmm. where she got this information? I mean, in front of the skull and she got this information from a precious stone skull. So, this is what I can just say that, that what was my experience. Brain Tonic, the smart antidote to head fog, the world's first organic botanical-based caffeine-free think drink designed for mental focus and clarity. Tastes great, super safe, with no caffeine crash. Just great fuel for your cranium. No chemical preservatives, no sugar, no fake anything. Check it out at www.maxsales.com slash tonic, that's spelled with a T-O-N-I-T. Q. That's www.maxsales.com slash tonic. Again, the spelling T-O-N-I-Q. Check it out today. Hey, listeners, did you know that Fate is the oldest and best-known publication on the paranormal? Well, since 1948, Fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. To subscribe, call now at one 800 728 2730 or visit Fate's website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. So what are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You know what's very unusual on the Paracast? It's very unusual. We're talking to Klaus Dona, world traveler, and we're focusing on the supposed mystical properties of the crystal skull and other things. David? So, Klaus. Yes? Since we spoke to you, many of our listeners have wanted you to come back on. You have been one of our most requested guests, you should know. Oh, thank you. 
Well, oh, no, thank the listeners, not me. Yes, I thank the listeners. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let me ask you a question. What interesting new artifacts have you come across since you were last on this show? In Calabria, in South Italy, several years ago, they found on a farmland uh, over 300 artifacts made out of terracotta, and there are on many of the pieces are writings on it. And this, these writings are exactly the same, again, like I talked last time. We saw pieces from uh, France, Glosel, from Burr's Cave in Illinois, in Colombia, in Ecuador, mm -hmm. and even in Australia. Again, it was the same writing. And the only man before was the German uh, president of the German Linguistic Society, Professor Schildmann. He unfortunately passed away a few years ago. He said that he could translate this writing and he called it pre-Sanskrit because he thinks this is much, much older than Sanskrit. And the writing again in, in Calabria on the Calabria pieces is exactly the same writing and there is now one Italian professor, Raso, and uh, he also translated several of those terracotta plates and artifacts and there is one over one meter long with a lot of uh, writing on it and he made a translation of it and the story in his translation was about graves the, the, the place it was a description how to find the place where sea kings uh, where there are graves of sea kings and that remembered me on Edgar Casey when he talked about the kings of Atlantis he called them sea kings and the translation a friend of mine a publisher in Roma Adriano Forgione he got this translation and because of this translation he really found the area the description was talking about an antique elephant also about a stone circle very small but like in Stonehenge and because the explanation the translation he found this place he found the uh, statue which is uh, very much damaged but you you on the photo you can easily see that uh, it was an elephant with long teeth which only uh, had the mastodon the mastodon like, yeah, yeah with the big horns. so that means yeah. that this elephant the statue must be very old or it must have been done from someone who knew how a mastodon is looking like and also he found the stone circle and they made already uh, ground penetrate radar around this area and on the radar they also found a tunnel system underground so that means if the translation would be wrong they would never have been able to find oh. this place so the most interesting for me was the translation the talk about sea kings the graves of sea kings and that means if Edgar Casey is right when he called the kings of Atlantis sea kings, then it must mean that uh, this place has something, that the artifacts have something to do with 
a very, very old lost civilization. And as I was talking already last time to you, uh, we found these writings all over the world. That means there's again in cases uh, talking uh, that the people of Atlantis, they went all over the world. And it's very interesting. And we are following this story, of course. Now, the same uh, Italian that translated these pieces that were found more recently, has yes. he attempted to translate the older pieces? I sent already photos through Adriano to him, and I'm waiting for the result. Mm. Especially, for me, very interesting are the pieces from Burr's Cave, because in the United States, the pieces from Burr's Caves are uh, frauds. And I do not think so, because I had also checked on several of those stones by stone experts, and they said that there is a patina on the writings, on, on the uh, stones, which takes a long, long time. So I do not think that those pieces are fraud. And for me, another collection would be very, very interesting. That's the Michigan plates, because also in the United States, uh, the official archaeologists are saying that those pieces are fraud. And I would highly appreciate if I could get once some of them for the exhibition, that I would have the chance to let them be checked by experts. Mm -hmm. on their originality. Do you find that the researchers who look at these things, Klaus, do you find that they tend to uh, want to discredit the credibility of some of these pieces? Are they open-minded, positive, or open-minded, maybe a little less, and are negative? How do you... Mm, I would not say so. I think it is very hard for them to say that those pieces are original because then people would ask yeah but what is it and what culture and what writing and they would not be able to answer so i think uh, sometimes it would be much easier to say those pieces are fraud than uh, checking them saying officially those are old pieces but without any explanation and that's the problem that we have many of these artifacts in our exhibition but <laughs> we cannot say what is it definitely, who did it, when they did it? So always questions, and that's why we call our exhibition Unsolved Mysteries, because mm -hmm. if we can explain the pieces, it's no, not it's anymore not unsolved. Yeah. 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 This, this we, had also, we had big stone sculptures from uh, Sierra Leone. Also, we got some new, uh, I mean old ones, but uh, new for our exhibition. And uh, a newspaper, a, a culture critic uh, writer, journalist, wrote a story that we try to cheat people because we present the so-called nomolis from Sierra Leone, which you can get in some auction at Sotheby's as something special, but the answer is we don't know enough about them. So what do you say? We present them as a unsolved mysteries because nobody knows who did it, when, which civilization, and this man is writing it's very easy to answer. Well, let's uh, see, that we certainly don't know enough is about it. an oxymoron <laughs> if I heard one, or maybe we can just say that guy is a moron if I ever heard one. Yeah, if, 
it's an unsolved mystery. We can't explain. Yeah. Well, <laughs> who knows? Who knows? You know, let me backtrack a little bit because it's well over a year since you were here before. And I'd like our yeah. listeners to go back and listen to that episode. I know one of the things that's so delightful about the PowerCast is the fact that a lot of people who discover our show and more and more are doing it, and I'm really grateful, and David is really grateful about that, they listen to the back episodes, but just maybe in one minute or so, how did you get your life involved in looking at these ancient artifacts and collecting them and looking for them? Yeah, I was reading many books about uh, mysterious artifacts, and I was a big skeptic man. I I thought by myself, I don't believe all these things. And as I'm working normally, I'm doing culture exhibitions. Uh, right now we have Rubens and his uh, time in Korea, a big exhibition. It will be open on 16th of this month. So I read many books and I, th I thought it would be the best trying to make an exhibition about all these pieces. And then you get some scientists, uh, archaeologists, geologists who will check those pieces and who will confirm this is a fraud, a new one, this is an old one, etc. So when we opened the exhibition, of course, I tried to get some help through scientists, but that was very, very difficult because those people don't really like to check up on those pieces because as I just said before, it would be very hard to say it is very old, but we don't know anything about it. That's very difficult. And I think that's the reason why not many of them we have, thanks to God, we have some experts now helping me, checking me pieces, but some of them, they frankly ask me not mention because they might have people problem who actually in their spend job. their time faking mm. these things making up their own crystal skulls to sell them on eBay or during the home shopping network broadcast I am sure that there are a lot of fraud's on the market uh, I found out one big collection in the United States I don't say any name but when I read the book about it with ex exactly explanations where this piece was found and the circumstances and archaeological report, everything. When I saw this book, for me, the pieces must be original, old ones. And I traveled to the United States and I could check the pieces by myself. And finally, I found out that the whole collection now, you have is a background new made. Archaeological mm. research so you have to determine whether something is real or fake based on your own experience or knowledge. No. I found, I took with me a special, um, how you call it in English, now I'm missing the word. Uh, if you look something close up. A, a magnifying glass. Yes, but a very special one which I use normally when we have uh, transports of our old paintings or old artifacts and there is a scratch or something on one of the pieces you have to look at it very special that you can see is it an old one or a new one and I brought this with me with my own eyes I would have told you that all those pieces are original just with my own eyes looking at it but with this special instrument I saw some uh, forms, textile forms, which the nature is not doing. And I asked the lady, 
are you sure those pieces are old? She said again, yes, yes. And then I said, no, 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 look here and here. <laughs> and when she looked through the gas, she saw it also. And then finally she told us that, yeah, my husband made all those pieces. So she was lying and she knew it. Yeah. And then she admitted it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. This would make me very upset. I think I would get very, very upset with someone like this. You know. No. At the same time, I had uh, two other appointments, which were very, very successful. So there was no problem. No. No. I mean, her husband already showed some of the pieces on American TV as a sensation. So, but he passed away, and finally. I don't talk bad about uh, dead people, so that's well, I that, don't mention any name and anything. This is very nice of you. Uh, yeah. You know, it's, it's just as much fun insulting the living. Now, Klaus, there was something we, we, we started talking about last yeah. show, and, and I want to ask you if there's any further information on something that continues to fascinate me, these Klerksdorp spheres, these metallic spheres from South Africa. We yes. started talking, we started talking yes. about with this last time. Yes. I have not been able to find much information on this. I have looked and I have looked. Uh, uh, I was in contact 2001, beginning of 2001, because I wanted to show two or three of these spheres in yeah. our exhibition. But finally, I was not able to get them. But I can send you the expert working on these uh, spheres so, what so you can contact him say? personally yeah, it's unexplainable I mean it's definitely unexplainable and it is not natural so who could do this and uh, I mean there's no explanation and I don't well, think that we will find an explanation for that hmm. now for people who don't know these are a series of metallic spheres that have been uh, discovered by miners working in South Africa. Yes, uh, they're very coming deep. very deep. Very deep. Uh, they're coming yeah. out of rock, Precambrian rock, which makes it yeah. billions of years old. Yeah, and uh, they appear to be machined, worked manually somehow. Right. Which, that's uh, that's what, right. what the expert also said. Yes, they're made of metal. Do we know what kind of metal they are made of, Klaus? Uh, I have to check my papers. I think he wrote me. Is uh, there any place okay. that our listeners can check your work online yes. or write to you? We have a website. It's the old one because I didn't have time yet to make it uh, updating, but we are now just working on it to do an update. And it's unsolved hyphen mysteries dot info i n f o and on this website also is my internet address so if anybody has something special i would appreciate to get any information and we'll return in a moment for part two of the powercast and klaus stoner ray perkins a reclusive veteran burned out from the gulf war lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. 
Attack of the Rockoids. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes, The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans the galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack of the Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack of the Rockoids, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Yeti. Klaus Dona joining us on the Paracast. He's a world traveler who has accumulated a huge collection of ancient artifacts that may or may not indicate the presence of advanced civilizations or, well, who knows, maybe even... Well, it's not even advanced civilizations, Gene. I think one of the things that's important is just the understanding that we do not have a clear picture of the history of this planet and of the history of life on this planet. That's we very have... true. That's very true. We can't... This is yeah, something that's, I that's, say over and over yeah. again until I'm blue in the face. We can't figure out what happened last week. We can't. Mm -hmm. We don't know what happened last week. There are 4,000 different versions. And yet, at the same time, if we're trying to interpret what happened last week and we can't get it all together, how do we interpret what happened 100 years ago, 500 years ago, or even 1,000 years? Or 10,000, or 50,000, or a million years ago. We just don't. We have a general understanding, and I think that what Klaus is doing is... I don't hear Klaus saying he has these absolute conclusions about the things that he's finding. I, I think the important role that Klaus is, is playing in this is to say to us, here are artifacts. They're interesting. They're physical objects. They're not, they're not anecdotal. They're physical objects we can touch, we can analyze. It's half the time we're analyzing them, maybe we don't even know what we're looking for. We're just trying to understand what they are. But they're physical things that all they do is indicate to us that our picture of the history of this planet is incomplete. Would you say that's a fair statement, Klaus? It's completely incomplete, I would say. Right, right. And, and that's, that's really all you're saying. I don't hear you saying in any sort of an absolute way you have a certain type of technologically advanced society that made these things. I don't hear you saying that. I hear you no, saying because we have I these... cannot prove it. You don't know. Exactly. Exactly. And and this ties back to the topic that we started the show with before you came on, that what we, what we have to do in looking at all of this is to understand that in many cases things cannot be proven. We're just trying to figure out perhaps what are the right questions for us to ask not even what are the answers, but what are the questions? Yes. Right? Yeah. Yes. All right. So let's talk about other interesting things you have found. And, and I would love to, for you to give us the, the information for the sphere expert, because these continue to, to fascinate me. Um, yes. What other things are you putting together for this new exhibit? Uh, for the new exhibit, we are getting some new pieces from South America and also from North America. But uh, what I was really shocked by myself was the information of uh, the Russian professor Muldashev. I think I talked last time about him. Uh, he made several expeditions to Tibet and he saw the so-called Samadhis, the sleeping giants. 
and he wrote a book about it. He called it The Third Eye. I think it's now under English translation. I read it in German, and it was so interesting, and I tried to contact him, and uh, we got email contact, and last December he sent his assistant speaking perfect German, and we were talking about seven hours, and then she gave a report to Professor Muldashev, and finally he came personally to Vienna to meet me for two days in uh, at the beginning of February on his way from Krita to Malta because he had a big exhibition, a team with several experts. They found a huge underground stone-made labyrinth in Krita, incredible big labyrinth. He showed me the photos. I never saw those photos anywhere. And uh, after Vienna, they started an expedition in Malta, and uh, I did not get yet the result, but he told me on the phone that, again, they found several very interesting things. But uh, while his stay in Vienna, I showed him many of photos of the artifacts which we found, and he made a big compliment to me. And they are checking now with experts on some of the photos. And uh, he showed me a PowerPoint presentation about uh, the expeditions in Tibet and especially the area around the Mount Kailash. The Mount Kailash is the holy mountain of the Tibetan and nobody is allowed to go up on the mountain. And his research gives him the idea that the top of the Mount Kailash was a pyramid. Hmm. And if you look at some of the photos very closely, you can see steps like a pyramid. So what he also informed me is that if you look at any information about Mount Kailash, it's mentioning that the Mount Kailash is 1,714 meters high. In fact, what they researched and what they found out that the Mount Kailash is 6,666 meters high. And the distance from Mount Kailash to the North Pole is exactly 6,666 kilometers. And the distance from hmm. North Pole to the Great Pyramid in Egypt is 6,666 kilometers. And the distance between Mount Kailash and the Great Pyramid in Egypt is 4,999 kilometers. So what does that mean? What does that mean? that these things were, well, that's very, in some ways, that's very odd. I can think that uh, a skeptic would say, well, okay, what pattern are you trying to find in the numbers there? Do, do we then think if, that... If, if you add the three numbers and you divide through seven or nine, I, I'm not, not sure at the moment, but if you do it, divide it through seven or nine, you have the so-called, how you call it in English, we call it in German, the golden Schnitt. The, the golden, golden cut. The golden, the golden ratio, I think. The, the golden ratio, yes. It's exactly this number comes out. Huh. Yeah. Now, that's not the only thing. There is a legend in uh, Tibet that uh, in Tibet was a big pyramid and there was the city of gods. 
And also Blavatsky was writing in one of her books that there was in old, old time a big pyramid in Tibet. So that could be the top of the Mount Kailash. That's what Professor Muldershev and his team believes. And the surrounding mountains have all certain forms. And he showed me a photo which we, we which they did with teleobjective. And you see four men, like uh, I told you last time about the 140-meter lady in Mali, in mm -hmm. stone. Four men profiles in the mountain, and each one is 700 meters high. Jeez. Who could have made this? Hmm. When do they think it was made? No idea. No, no idea. They don't. And but you're saying it must be very, very old because the forms which some of the mountain area had is destroyed through the, the weather and climate and everything. And so it must be erosion. very, very old. Now, you're saying that they found a labyrinth of stone tunnels underneath of this mountain? No, that was in Creta. Oh, that was in Creta. I'm sorry. All right. Yeah, that was in Creta. I and see. there you have also the legend mythology about uh, the bull. How you call this legend? The what? Minotaurus. Minotaurus, really? Minot Minotaurus. There's the legend of the Minotaurus in the labyrinth. And this so labyrinth have, is yeah. really big, unbelievably big. So we have mythologies of non-human life forms in these underground uh, labyrinths. This is very odd. What do you make of all this? No idea. You know, it's funny. As we talk about this, I'm looking over, and this will be happening, by the way, a few days before the show is actually broadcast on the 20th of July. But there's an article in USA Today dated on the 9th of July, and it says, Mystery of Crystal Skulls may be no mystery at all. And I think the logic they point here is that most of these crystal skulls were actually built or constructed in the 20th century between 1950 and 1960, so they do not represent prehistory. I think that's what they're talking about, whereas others, of course, were recovered prior to then. But right. that's what they call the conventional attempt to discourage current interest in crystal skulls. There's always an article like that every yeah. few months. Well, this isn't true. Well, that isn't true. And they quote, an expert who checked it the question is who really did a serious check on each of the, these skulls mm -hmm. right because that's the bottom line when you well anybody can say these things aren't real but what work was well, done they're quoting smithsonian right? anthropologist jane mclaren walsh ever hear of her no hmm. she did the research she's on the it. one who claims that this is what the truth is. She claims there's nothing mystic or mysterious about any of them. She's an anthropologist. She's not a precious stone expert. I think she has to ask an expert to check with her and get finally the approval that it is not an old artifact, it's a modern artifact. I mean, it's easy to say this is a fraud. I can say to anything of my artifacts, this is a fraud, this is a fraud, because I cannot prove that it's original. If I can prove it, I cannot prove it. Only an expert can.
We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on hand, and he has a special offer for listeners of the Paracast. We are offering six issues for the price of five. Normally, when you send me a subscription for nineteen ninety-five, a new subscription, you get five issues. It's our introductory offer. But just for our friends on the Paracast and friends of Gene and Dave, we're going to throw in an extra issue and give you six issues for the price of five. That's six issues for nineteen ninety-nine, just for you. How do we take advantage of this offer? There are three ways to take advantage of it. One is, if you're online, go to www.ufomag.com. Hit subscribe when you come to the PayPal page. Just put in under item, Paracast Offer, 1995, and I will know that you get six issues for the price of five. Or you could send your check or money order to UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California. That's Ray spelled R-E-Y, California, 90295. Put down your name and your address, and on your name and address label, put down Paracast offer. You can also put it on your check for 1995 in your money order. I will know exactly what it means because I'm psychic, and I will credit you with six issues instead of five for that 1995. Or you can call me at 1-888-UFO. 6242, and I will take your name and address and your credit card and send you six issues for the price of five, and that's how you do it. To automatically assume that everything is the work of an extraterrestrial intelligence, I think, would be a mistake. To automatically assume that things that you can't understand are supernatural occurrences, I think that's a mistake. I think that because physics as a science is so imperfect, that we may discover eventually that some of the more baffling things that we experience as phenomenon will later be described in very precise terms using tools which we don't have now which would but which will be developed later to give more rational explanations for stuff that is too scary you're in the paracast with gene steinberg and david biedney you never know what's going to happen next I tell you, I can prove this, that we have Klaus Dona joining us on the Paracast, and we have a link to his site, so if you want to learn more information about the things he does, that's where to look. Now, we've talked a lot about where some of these things might originate, and certainly even an advanced civilization that existed 50 or 100,000 years ago, there'd be very little evidence today of its existence. I mean, if we had some kind of world catastrophe in 2012, let's use that infamous date, 2012, we have this world catastrophe, and then some new civilization arises on Earth a thousand years from now, what would they find of our existence? Stones, because most of the other material will disappear. What about plastic? I mean, a lot of plastic will survive, right? I'm not expert on that. I'm not th expert on that, but... Uh, yeah, I, I think a lot of plastic would actually survive, especially mm -hmm. denser plastics. You know, there, there are certain soft plastics that might uh, be affected by biodegradability, but, for example, blocks of lucite would probably survive. Probably. 
And where would they found, find it? Where would they find it? I think very deep underground, because if there's a real catastrophe, the, the earth will change. Right. So, so, so many of the mysterious artifacts were found underground in the earth. 10 or meters, underwater. 50 or, meters right. or underwater, yeah. Well, so if there's a, a significant rise in the sea level, and if a number of cities go underwater, well, then the metal would basically corrode and rust under salt water, uh, but plastic would not dissolve necessarily under salt water. I know concrete would, but certainly anything made of plastic glass will probably not uh, will not erode tremendously so i would guess that glass and plastic a lot of the glass and plastic would be there in some form in the case of something like for example new york city uh, people don't realize that uh, on the island of manhattan there are many layers of the old part of the city that are underground that are underneath of the sidewalks these things have been built up over time and and excavated and so as recently as maybe 10 years ago in downtown manhattan they discovered an old slave cemetery that they they found while they were excavating to build a building and they ran into this entire cemetery that nobody remembered nobody even knew it was there so th i think this is important to realize that uh yes we know about the sites where we do current archaeological excavation but for every place that we know about where we're digging there are probably three other places where there is some forgotten part of human history that occurred where there are artifacts and we we just don't know where they are and i think one could make the argument that in certain parts of for example the amazon jungle uh, there are probably very, very likely a number of structures that are they're hidden under the vegetation. We just don't know that they're there. And uh, counter to what many people believe, human beings have not walked on every square inch of this planet. We have not done this. No. Uh, I think people have a hard time believing that, right? Yeah. There's, there's a legend in this area where you were talking about Brazil, South America, about the lost kingdom Akakoa, which was mentioned in the last Indiana Jones movie, wrong, they called it Akador, but uh, the legend is talking about Akakoa, a lost kingdom, and uh, we have... A very interesting artifact in our exhibition from Ecuador, which was found in an underground tunnel system. It's a very strange form of uh, bronze plate, very heavy, very strange done. And on this bronze plate are very strange symbols. I never ever saw them in any other artifact or old piece. And there is shown a man which looks like a little bit like a Christian bishop. I mean, the, the head but is the looking head like head. a... Yeah. yeah, definitely nothing to do with any existing or known pre-Columbian culture. And that might be, might, maybe, a piece of a lost kingdom, of the so-called lost kingdom, Akakoa. 
And this September, I have the chance to attend an exhibition in Bolivia to a place where there are 2.6, 2.5, 2.6 meter skeletons with long skulls. And I show uh, photos of one of those uh, skulls to Professor Muldershev and his friend who was with him. He is a Russian expert of uh, jaw operations. And when he saw the, these skulls, he said they are definitely not deformed. They are original long skulls. And uh, then we go further up on 2,000 meters, and there is what uh, they call, the, the, the people there call it another like uh, Machu Picchu, but much older than Machu Picchu. That means uh, many stone structures. So I'm looking forward to see these. And maybe we find some artifacts. Let me ask you something here. Looking at these artifacts and the stuff that you've examined and had analyzed, is there anything about them that we could say, number one, just indicates that maybe some of our forebears were far more advanced than we might have expected, or perhaps that there was some kind of intervention from some outside force, ancient astronauts or whatever? This is always the question. As long as I have no approval of... Uh uh, aliens or whatever, I cannot talk about it. What I think there must have been a civilization or several civilizations which had a lot of know-how, which we do not have yet. Maybe we are much advanced in, in high-tech, but uh, these civilizations, they must have had a knowledge. For example, uh, transporting very, very huge stones over mountains. How could they do it? Well, There's no answer. So this is an interesting question because as we study, well, there are certain things as we study history, there are certain things that reveal themselves and there are other things that are less clear. A, a good example of this that I can think of is has always been the fascination with the Stradivarius violins these violins and, and other violins from that period that these instruments were being built in, they sound incredibly good. And there was always a lot of uh, mystery around this. Was it something special about uh, Stradivarius and how he built them? Was there something perhaps about his wood finishing techniques and his woodworking techniques? And uh, what ultimately, uh, recently I've read, is that there is a theory that the special integrity of the sound was achieved because of the weather conditions and the idea that the grain on the wood was very, very fine. There was a lot of really old trees that a lot of these old growth trees we no longer have anymore. Most of the trees in the world today that wood is harvested from to build instruments are relatively young trees. And uh, uh, the density of the wood is very different from a much older tree. And uh, so ultimately, uh, a lot of people feel it comes down to the specific uh, situation that allowed this wood to have a very, very fine, very dense grain. And so what we find is that there are certain ecological elements that have nothing to do with the people themselves. Uh, it's, it's theorized that if a really good violin maker had access to this kind of wood today, wood that we really don't have anymore, that they could build an instrument that sound as, as good as a Stradivarius. So 
Uh, one of the things I think it's important to realize is that maybe when we talk about, for example, how did they, how were such big stones moved? We tend to think of everything in terms of how we would approach problems today. And, and what we know about how we approach problems today is that we look to technology to work around our impatience. We are an impatient people now. We expect things to happen quick, quick, quick. And technology is what allows us to do that. But maybe what we have is the possibility that in these older portions, these older uh, segments of human history, that maybe because people weren't in such a rush, maybe because it was a very uh, much more laid-back existence, we didn't have all of the pressures. There were much more primal pressures then. Feed yourself, try not to be eaten by predators, and try to survive without the benefits of technology that maybe uh, some of these projects happened over multiple generations and people were more accepting of that. Where, you know, maybe in, in a prior civilization, the idea of taking uh, 150 years to, to build something, today that would be crazy. People would say, well, there's no way. But, but maybe a thousand years ago, the idea of taking 150 years to build something fit more comfortably with people's religious beliefs and their approach towards life, where maybe lifespans were not as long, and so people felt if they could have this thing to devote themselves to for their lifetime, that there was a sense of security in this. And then, okay, so now there's the man and his family, and the man is working on cutting the stone, and he's teaching his son how to cut the stone, and his son teaches his son how to cut the stone, and they weren't so worried about amassing possessions and big houses and cars. They were more worried about securing a place in the afterlife, and if they devoted themselves their whole lives and their children's lives, that their place maybe in the afterlife, their stature, was more guaranteed. I mean, Klaus, how do sociological elements come into play and interact with technological elements to maybe create a situation that we don't we can't imagine today i don't know you see what i'm saying though do you understand what yeah. i'm saying yeah yeah but even they had a lot of time because this is usually a very easy excuse uh, why these uh, for example the pyramids and this happens because they had many people and they had a lot of time but still this is no explanation how to transport 50 ton stones from other place that's definitely not the place where they are now bring over some mountains some rivers how you can use thousands of people and it would not be possible. And you can could have a lot of time and it would not be possible. But how did they do? Well, maybe there are techniques that because of modern technologies, we know about the most advanced technologies. So certainly we can put aside our egos, set aside our egos and say, you know what, maybe... A thousand, two thousand, or five thousand years ago, there were things they knew that we didn't. They moved their technology in a different way. And maybe it would be great instead of dismissing it or trying to put it into our own framework, let's figure out what they did and maybe use that for our own building, our own construction. That would be a good idea. That's why I'm interested in old uh, artifacts, because maybe you can learn something out of it. Well, what have we learned out of old artifacts, Klaus? What have you learned from studying these things? I think there were many, many civilizations before us, before our known 
oldest civilizations like the Egyptian, like the Chinese, like Mesopotamia, Sumer. I think there is a lot, lot before. And that talks against the Darwinism because the oldest civilizations and before and before and we are coming from the apes which I personally after all these researches do not believe or cannot believe. Explain that please. For example just a few months ago they found uh, a footstep in a real rock in Bolivia a real human footstep or Professor Muldashev uh, gave me photos from one of his expedition in the north of Syria there you have 90 centimeter footsteps in stone and the official explanation is that people made these something for mystery, mysterious or whatever they did it but as they had experts geologists and ethnologists Anthropologists. There was a whole group of different experts and they checked those footsteps and they took part of the material of this so-called stone and the research uh, showed that it is it was cement. But it must be at least 2,000 years old. I wonder if they had labor unions then to <laughs> cause all sorts of headaches and problems. <laughs> Brain Tonic, the smart antidote to head fog, the world's first organic botanical-based caffeine-free think drink, designed for mental focus and clarity. Tastes great, super safe, with no caffeine crash. Just great fuel for your cranium. No chemical preservatives, no sugar, no fake anything. Check it out at www.maxsales.com slash tonic, that's spelled with a T-O-N-I-C. Q. That's www.matchsales.com slash tonic. Again, the spelling T-O-N-I-Q. Check it out today. In a world where UFO conventions are completely, utterly boring, come something new from a whole bunch of people who are trying to do something new. The Culture of Contact 2008 UFO Festival. This is reality. Cyrus, David Bassett. David Biedney. Dr. William J. Burns. David Hatcher Childress. Patricia Corbett. Richard Dolan. Bud Hopkins. Ellen Blagno. Michael Mannion. Melissa Reed. Jeff Ritzman. Giorgio Sukalos. <laughs> Jeremy Fainey. And Farrier Duzo. Special President. Presentations by Combustion Motor Corporation. Masahiro Kanata. And the world premiere of the silent but deadly truth pollution of truth. For more information and to order tickets, please visit www.cultureofcontact.com. <laughs> Once again, that's www.cultureofcontact.com. Card subject to change. You could be screwed financially. Probably not, though. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast.
We're talking to Klaus Stoner on the PowerCast, and he's someone we've wanted to get back here for such a long time. We only spent an hour with him the first time out. And now I think we've got things here that are really going to be fascinating and worthy of further discussion, not just in more interviews on the PowerCast, but also because of the fact that we have the online community at forum.theparacast.com, and we completely redesigned that forum, by the way, to make it easier for you to keep up to date on what's going on, to get emails of new posts, and I think there's a lot of meat here, and I think if someone wants to open a forum or a thread, as we call it, to talk about Klaus and his work, this is the time to do it. David Bietney, what do you have to say? Well, I'd like to ask Klaus about a couple of specific things. Klaus, we had a, a guest on the show that we really enjoyed, a man by the name of Ted Phillips, who uh, has a thing called the Center for Physical Trace Research. He's mostly a UFO researcher, and he looks at, for the most part, he um, looks at trace evidence left by landed craft. And so he is very involved in physical research of UFOs. But when we had him on, he talked about something, and I'm curious to know, maybe you don't know anything about this, but uh, he has something that, that he had been researching. He calls it Project Moonshaft. This was uh, in Slovakia. He had these notes from this person. I know uh, about that. You know about this. What do you know yes. about this? This, this, this strange uh, black uh, uh, yes. circular yes. surface. What do you know yes. about this, Klaus? Uh, I read uh, a friend of mine is the publisher of a magazine in Switzerland, Luc Bergin. He's a journalist and a very good researcher, and uh, he did uh, several pages report about it. And as far as I see, it would be very interesting getting deeper into this and uh, trying to find this uh, cave where they found this uh, strange object. Did your friend actually um, just go off of the stuff that Ted Phillips dug up, or had they spoken to other people? Uh, I have to ask him, mm. because this artifact would not be possible to transport and to show in the exhibition. Of course, mainly I'm interested in artifacts which I could possibly show in the exhibition. So I was not going further behind this uh, information, but I can call him and ask him where he got his informations from. Mm -hmm. I, I guess for, from what I gather, nobody has been able to find this cave again, that mm -hmm. they don't know where it is. Because the uh, it's fascinating in that on the Ted Phillips website, ufophysical.com, if you look at the Project Moonshaft segment, there is the, the very first sketch is this weird black surface that is encased in rock and it almost looked like it's machined and as if it were some old underground technology now i'm not sure what i personally think about this i i, I think it's fascinating and i think that ted phillips is a man with integrity i don't think he would chase after something that he didn't feel had some some merit to it but do you know of anything else like this anywhere else in the world klaus are there other reports of these type of underground, uh, what appear to be technological structures? Uh, I got information, and we have to check it uh, next year when I'm going to Ecuador. There is also a story about uh, a strange uh, artifact, which I would like to check personally before talking about it. 
because well, you never know is it a joke or is it reality well tell, give us a hint give us a clue you can't just say this and not say anything about it <laughs> <laughs> there is a, a mountain which uh, has the form of a pyramid it has the form like a pyramid let's say an old man living there said that he had the feeling uh, or he knows that there is a UFO in this mountain and by fortune I was uh, last year in Ecuador with a friend of mine and this man is really something special let's say he has a knowledge which, which makes sometimes shocked me so he was with me because of another story and uh, we were at this place where this mountain is and I did not talk to him at any moment about what the old man who passed away already told me and when we returned a few weeks later we sit together we had a two three beer and then he said I have to tell you something about uh, this place we visited in Ecuador. I said, yes, what? He said, but don't think that I'm crazy. I said, no, how sh how sh why should I think you are crazy? He said, uh -huh. you know what is inside this mountain? I said, no, what? He said, a UFO. And I was really shocked, believe me. Well, what else did he tell you? That was it? That there was a, had they seen this UFO? Uh, in and out of the mountain? No, 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 no. He finds places where you don't see anything, and he would say, here, I don't... How does I, he say there's I, a UFO in this mountain, etc., etc.? And then how do you investigate it? Do you engage in some kind of excavation or something? Sure, we would like to do that. I would think so. Of course. Everybody mm -hmm. would like to do it. But it's a time of question and financing. And that also raises another question. Obviously, we have theories that if you go down into the earth, you're going to find all sorts of relics of prehistory, prehistoric civilizations, whatever, advanced civilizations, ancient astronauts, etc., etc., etc. So, have you made much of an effort to uh, look stories. down in there and see what's going on? There is one cave tunnel system in Bolivia, which we are planning to do next or after next year, together with Professor Muldashev and his team because I wouldn't go alone inside such a cave uh, such a tunnel system <laughs> you need some experts with you you also need someone who speaks Spanish I speak that's not the problem really you speak Spanish yes of course otherwise I wouldn't have found so many artifacts in in uh, South America you have to talk with people to get some informations which are not public Bueno, entonces vamos a hablar en español, porque estamos claro, hablando en inglés. No? Ladies and gentlemen, this ah, is the perfecto. Spanish el hour judío, el otro judío. Él no habla nada en español. Cállate, judío sucio. Cállate esa boca. Estamos hablando... Escúchame, escúchame. escúchame la, vida, la vida es como un tango. El que le baila es un loco y el muerto es el paso doble, ¿verdad? <laughs> Exactamente. Hey Gene, I, this has got potential, man. Klaus is now. This is a this is Klaus is a true global citizen, and and I, I respect that. I respect anybody who speaks more than one language. He speaks Spanish well. You speak Spanish well. All right. So I was going to offer my services as a Spanish translator, but it sounds like you have this uh, under control, Klaus. So here's a question for you. Yeah. What is the what is the one country that is completely unexplored that might have some of the most interesting paranormal artifacts where do you think this might be Bolivia Bolivia yes why 
if you go to Pumapunku, close to Tiawanako, and you check those stones, they are so precise, uh, done, incredible. I mean, and there's a lot. I have a good friend there and uh, I got several informations and I will go there this September first time. I was never in Bolivia, but I'm really looking forward. Hmm. And very interesting for me is also Ecuador. There is also a lot to discover there. And I love South America, so I'm always looking for it the chance. It seems that South America has so many <laughs> mysteries that have I was not been fully solved. Very many, many. Because, for example, the the Ica, the Nazca lines. That's one thing. But of course, there are many, many different explanations. But uh, I saw also there the long skulls, which are on display, for example, in the small town Ica, in the museum. There are many very, very interesting skulls, and when I showed those photos, they are shown as, uh, uh, how you call it, uh, deformed skulls. When right. I showed them to the Russian professor, the jaw and uh, skull expert, he said, those skulls are never, ever deformed. So They are uh, natural uh, skulls, but what kind of civilization was that? And it, it would be most interesting doing age dating on these skulls, also DNA analysis and so on. Is this something where you really got to get donations or sell lots of tickets to your expedition? And your no, First of all, you, of course, you need a lot of money and first of all, you need the official allowance to do that. You just don't the government. take the skull. Yeah, you just can't take the skull. Yeah, no, no, and I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't. I, that's what uh, also uh, a newspaper wrote that I am a collector and I collect strange artifacts. I have to say I am not collecting artifacts. I am lending artifacts. I am exporting them for the exhibition on legal way with uh, the, the ministries and I'm bringing back those artifacts. I would never keep artifacts for myself because those artifacts are not belonging to me and these, these artifacts are really the culture of each country. So mm -hmm. they have to stay there. Well, that's an important collecting. thing here that maybe some of our listeners There's don't realize. I'm glad you emphasized that. Eventually, all these artifacts go back to their original country. It's not like, for example, Jim Mosley who went to Peru and he dug up artifacts and he sold them. <laughs> never. I would never do that. Never. And one more very interesting thing is you have to respect those artifacts, especially if those artifacts are, uh, for example, bones or skulls from dead people. Or so you have to respect the artifacts. Absolutely. Now, Klaus, on, on your website, there is a picture of one of these deformed skulls. There's one picture. I'm looking at it right now. That one is a deformed one from deformed. Uh, Hungary. It was found in Hungary. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, sorry, in Austria. In Austria, outside Vienna, not so far away from Vienna, and it belongs to the Avars. I don't know how you call it in in English. They came from Asia to Europe. So this is this is a natural time. deformation. It's a natural deformation. This, this guy is a uh, human done deformation. Ah. This is a very, really deformed skull. Yeah, it's very extreme. Yeah. Very extreme. When you say these long skulls, though, are you talking about a skull where the whole thing that is, it's all extended so that the jaw and the, the nose and the holes for the eyes 
that they're all stretched out on the skull? How do you mean exactly stretched out skull? They have done it in many places in the world. When the baby was born and uh, growing up, they did a special uh, binding around the skull. All right. And okay. they they made it uh, tough and tougher. So that means that uh, when the child grew up, the skull got the long scale. I see. That, okay. So that's these the are these deformation. Are... You could find it. You still can find it in some places in Africa. Uh, they did it in South America very much, and they did it in Asia. So why did people do that? Maybe because. They lived a civilization which had long skulls. Oh, we don't know. We don't to know. look like. Of course, right. many people would say, "Yeah, because uh, alien came to the earth and they had long skulls, and they thought the people thought those are gods and whatever." There are many explanations. Okay. Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack! Attack! of the Rockwell. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes, the soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans the galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack, Attack of the Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack, Attack of the Rockoids, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. Hey listeners, did you know that Fate is the oldest and best-known publication on the paranormal? Well, since 1948, Fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. To subscribe, call now at one 800 728 2730 or visit Fate's website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. So what are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. We're talking to Klaus Dona, world mm -hmm. traveler and researcher on the PowerCast. Welcome to return after a long time. We tried to get together, and of course, he goes along on these weeks or months-long expeditions around the world, and just trying to pin him down for a couple of hours proved to be difficult, and we're so grateful that you came to join us again, Klaus, so we can catch up <laughs> with you. Now, personally, do you believe some of the stuff that you're exhibiting represents an advanced ancient civilization or perhaps ancient astronauts? What's your personal belief about all this stuff? Both possibilities could be, because uh, on one of my trips in uh, Mexico, I, made, I met an old gentleman. He is a shaman. 
he was called by a small village outside Mexico City because uh, they found after an explosion they found uh, strange things and uh, they called him and he went there and he did some photos and he slept there overnight uh, at the family's house and in the night time military came to the village and they took everything which, which uh, mm. what was there they took with them but he had already made by himself the photos and he showed me the photos and I would say one of the photos is definitely you see a close-up photo of uh, so-called it looks like an alien big big eyes it was completely burned and the left hand was uh, away and uh, a big cut over the breast and the stomach and for me this photo looked definitely like an alien and that's what he said it is so I didn't see it personally but I know that this man really is not a liar and so it could be both could be well, now wait. Are you are you still in touch with this man? Yes, of course. Can you get us a copy of the photo? Uh, he didn't want to give me last time one, but uh, I'm sure when I go next time there, he will give me one. Very strange, we, we, believe we me. Would, we would love to see that. You know, yeah. You, yeah. People people make claims about things like this, and it's so rarely do we ever actually get to see something like this. I think that would be fascinating to see that. So. What do you think has to happen, Klaus, in the world of the research archaeology? Is there a special goal? Is there is there a special thing that could happen to make many more people interested in trying to understand these things? It's kind of like in, in the UFO world, we talk about getting a, a piece of a craft, or we talk about getting an alien body. Is there an equivalent thing in the study of these anomalous objects? Is there a holy grail that you... I mean, what would be the most amazing thing for you that you could find that would help you interest people in this topic and in these items? This question is hard to answer. Yeah. I mean, there are so many artifacts. For example, what we had on display and we will have again on display is the little pyramid, a flat pyramid with an eye in it and exactly 13 steps on it. I think I told you last time already about that. Yes. Uh, yes. We found it in Ecuador. This is one of the most amazing pieces for me. And there are several other artifacts from this collection which is which does not fit any pre-Columbian culture and which definitely I think does not come from there. So that means long time ago somebody must have brought it there and on the bottom of this pyramid you have it you can see it every day on your one dollar note the famous pyramid with the shining eye the eye in normal color is gray but if you put a black light on it the eye shines like a real eye and on the bottom of this pyramid is a gold inlay the Orion constellation and this old writing I talked at the beginning, uh, unknown writing and mm -hmm. the deciphering of uh, Professor Schildmann, his translation was uh, the son of the creator comes. Mm -hmm. It's very strange, very, very strange. And, and as far and as I know, it's the only real existing pyramid with the eye. There's no picture of this on your website, is there? 
Uh, no, because when we did this website, uh, I was not able to to display those pieces. But uh, very soon, we will change, and then we put it, of course, on the front page. You know, I also wanted to take this opportunity to thank you for sending me the catalog of the last exhibit. I have. Oh, in the catalog, you have it. In the yes, catalog, oh, it's in the catalog. The, of the pyramid. Uh, yes, of course. Uh, sadly, my, my German is not very good. So. Uh, sorry, we don't have the English translation, but I can send you the, the rough translation of the artifacts in English. I would love to. I would love to see that. You know, you really need to get that in English, Klaus. I think a lot of people would be very interested in having that because it's beautifully put together. It's really it's a beautiful book and. Uh, I think people would love to have this. I don't know that there exists such a thing like this that people can get in English. I don't know that there there is such a thing. Yeah, do, no, do I you don't find... think so, too. But no, we, we no. try to do a book, uh, a new one for next year. And well, then, of I... course, I try to translate it. Uh, I, I make a, an English translation also. Yeah. Do you find that there the interest in these topics... Is consistent? Are there times when people are more interested in, the, in in what you're doing than other times, or is it is it fairly? Are people, I mean, like the attendance at the exhibits. Do you find that the attendance is healthy? Lots of people. Oh yeah, yes, yes. It, it's increasing. I think the interesting the interest on those pieces is increasing year by year. Mm-hmm. So, uh, do you think something strange is going to happen in 2012? Who knows. <laughs> but I'm asking you. Concerning the 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 a friend of mine, uh, David Wood, a Mexican, he is the expert on the Mayan calendar and the Aztec calendar. He's a real expert, and he's saying that there's a lot coming uh, in the future. But you see, that's a very generalized statement. There is always a lot coming in the future. It, does he get more specific than this? You better should make an interview with him. This is that one of the things great. of the paranormal, quote-unquote, that we haven't explored as much. And right now, you're our resident expert, Klaus, so I have to say that. No, there isn't, I always say there is no expert. There are people who know a little bit more well, and a little bit less. So difficult, but expert but yeah. is a very, it's a very strange. Now, we only have a few moments left, and maybe we'll just kind of go back and forth on a few things here. And that is, looking at... The U.S. of A. We have the American Indians, and they have different legends. You know, we kind of think that, of course, if it wasn't for Columbus or perhaps the Vikings, that the Indians were here alone. They developed alone. There was no commerce or contact with anyone else around the world. But the Indians also have ancient artifacts or mysteries. Have you explored them very much? got several uh, informations and uh, the pity thing is that in America those pieces are not finding that interest like overseas. Mm. I mean for mm. me those, those artifacts are very very much interesting but uh, not in your country. It's strange. I don't uh, know why. I think we they can have make a lot, guesses. Especially yeah. what you said before. That's another question very hard to answer. Who was first there? And uh, the research in Mexico of Dr. Virginia Steen McIntyre already in the 1970s. She found places in Huetlaco in Mexico where there lived people already over 400,000 years ago. 400,000 years ago? Really? Yes, yes. And when she 
published this report, from that moment on, she did not get any official job until these days. So that's maybe an answer on your questions. Uh, why not more scientists are interested in those species? She just reported the reality and that made her job pass away. Yeah. Hmm. We are because, a country, we are a country of contradictions, you know. Yeah, because uh, it, it, it was against the, 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 the official talking yeah. that the first uh, Indians came via Asia to North and later on to South America. Who knows if it was not the other way around? Everything civilization. civilization started in predefined places and spread around the world. And that's our concept. For example, you have in Yonaguni, under the sea, uh, a, a huge stone monument done thousands of years ago. You have this uh, similar stone monuments or buildings in South America. You have the oldest uh, culture in Japan, the Jomon culture, which is about 6,000 years. They did uh, the first ceramics there. And you have exactly the same uh, ceramic you find in Valdivia in Ecuador. So that means who came from where to where? That's a big question. There is no answer yet. And I think the, the people in South America, they lived long, long time ago. 400,000 years you have an approval in Mexico. So maybe some well, how do you Celts convert or the white kings came later on to the how country. Things were to how things might have really been. <laughs> there is no answer. As long yeah. as there is no, not, uh, if, if there are not uh, more scientists really working on artifacts, making comparison and exchanging informations as long I I cannot give an answer. I wouldn't give an answer. You're you're too smart to do that. Gina, I think I think the response to the question is, you know, how do you change the bureaucracies of current knowledge gathering systems? It's difficult because it's think difficult. about it would change completely the history because it's, it's very some difficult. Kind of catastrophic development to change history in that fashion. It's not something that happens easily. I mean, look at the argument over whether right. Pluto is really a planet right. or, or something else. You know? We came and figured that. In the last couple of minutes, can you tell our listeners yeah. when your next exhibition will be? Maybe if they're doing some traveling, they could find it and check it out. We open on 1st of August for two months in Jeju City in South Korea. And then the artifacts are going back to the owners and lenders. And next year, from April on for six months, we are showing again in Vienna because we have uh, many new artifacts. And I think it's a good place to show this exhibition again. And then we will see. Maybe one day I come to United yes, States. Yes, of uh, Come to New York. Come to New York. Come to New York. I think that would be a great place. I would think that would be a but you have to have an organizer right. there and everything because I could not do it from here. Uh, but I would bring all the pieces, no problem. To New York. You're coming to New York. I would come. Why not? Yeah, Gene lives in Arizona. They have no water we there. They have great chocolate. They have we completely have wrong. It's chocolate. Warm, it's sunshine. We have beautiful. Semi alleged kosher delis. No, not terrible. quite like terrible. some of the ones in New York City, but close enough. 
We have great Indian food, you Chinese don't have food. Anything. Get out of here. No. no you right. Yes. You can't. Well, you, you, live you, so you live in a desert. You live in a desert. temperature right now as we do this is 95, <laughs> and today it will be 106 no. in the shade. 106 great. centigrade. Centigrade. Well, Klaus, Klaus. No, not centigrade. Oh, not yeah, yeah, yeah. Klaus. See, Klaus. No, where can Klaus, our Klaus, listeners once again get in touch with you if they want to learn more about the things that you do? Yes. Through the Internet, I think. And I would appreciate if there are new informations about artifacts in the United States. So you don't have to remember where it is, what it is. You click on the name Klaus Stona at theparacast.com, and you will go to the English version of the site. Just like that, lickety-split. Klaus Stona, world traveler, we're so happy that you joined us again on the Paracast. Thanks for joining us. We hope to hear again from you soon. I thank you, and best regards to all of your listeners, and hope to hear us again. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.